Lord God, thank you for being with us uh, again this last week and watching over us. Thank you, Lord, for granting us good health and preserving us in difficulties. We are grateful, Lord, for the rain that you've sent our way and the surprise Friday night of snow and rain and, and then the frost on the ground this morning. And, um, well, thank you for those things. We thank you for the promise of rain coming. We pray that you continue to provide all the things that we need. We ask you to be with us as we uh, jump into Psalm 15, that, Lord, that you would give us uh, perspective and perception, that your spirit would aid us as he testifies of the truth, and that our hearts would be prepared. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we are moving to Psalm 15. So you can grab a Bible, Bible app, grab a friend who's got a Bible. Calling Psalm 15 the privilege of piety and proximity. You like that? All oh, three P's. Three P's. The privilege of piety and proximity. All right. So let me read Psalm 15, a Psalm of David. O Yahweh, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. So that was Psalm 15. And so as I said, I'm calling this the privilege of piety and proximity. And here's the outline. Verse 1, the tent. Verses 2 through the first part of verse 5, or middle of verse 5, the tone. And then the tenacity, the last line in verse 5. So... Um, Okay, there we go. But first, bum, 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 bum. I'm going to make an assertion, and I hope to prove this as we go through it, and then I'll say this again as we, get, as we get to the end. Based on Psalm 15, and based on John 4, 19 through 24, so we're going to read John 4, 19 through 24 in just a second. Worship is not an entitlement. It's not a take it or leave it compensation or comeuppance. It is a divinely bestowed honor and privilege. Worship is a divinely bestowed honor and privilege. So let's look very quickly at John 4. And then you can ask me all kinds of questions about this at the end when I come back to this, see if I make my case for this. So John, the Gospel according to John, chapter 4. So Jesus sits down at the well... Jacob's well, he's exhausted, up comes this Samaritan woman, and you know that whole dialogue that goes on there, so many amazing things about this story. But then, they get into this discussion, and I, I, this is just sounds, I mean, this is just truly human. Um, so Jesus says here in verse 16, go tell your husband, go call your husband and tell him to come. And the woman, she says, I have no husband, and Jesus said, you are right, <laughs> And saying, I have no husband for you, have five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And what does the woman immediately do? Verse 19. 
this is just so human. She changes the subject. Get off of it. I'm uncomfortable. So then she goes right to theological uh, tolerance, right? That's a joke. She just goes, where? She says, the woman said to her, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <clears throat> uh, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. I just find this whole dialogue at this point humorous because it's a typical human move. Right To move away from this, it makes me uncomfortable. I'll go to something that maybe even be controversial just so we can argue about that and stay off of me. Right, And that's what she does. And so Jesus said to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in, on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, what we know for salvation uh, is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And then he goes on from there. So in that discussion with the Samaritan woman, his point is, is that it doesn't... Worship is not something you just create. It's not something that fits your need. God seeks worshipers. Okay, that, uh, this, by the way, goes in a little bit with the sermon this morning, providentially. Okay, and so, but it's the fact that it's not a privilege that I, that I deserve, an entitlement that I deserve. It's something that's bestowed. The honor of being able to worship God is a gift of God. Okay, and so based on Psalm 15 and John 4, 19 through 24, worship is not an entitlement. It's not a take it or leave it compensation or comeuppance it is a divinely bestowed honor and privilege so keep that in the back of your head we can we'll discuss that at the end we'll come back around to it because i want to work through psalm 15 before we have that discussion all right so the tent starting at verse one so what is the question in psalm 15 verse one what is the question Who said it? Yeah, who will sojourn in the tent? What does sojourn mean? Yeah, something like that, right? Somebody else said something else. Was that what you said, Cindy? And who may dwell with God, right? So who will dwell on your holy hill? The Hebrew word for sojourn there is the idea of um, uh, it's uh, an alien or dependent that is allowed to move in, an immigrant allowed to actually move in to this country. All right, that's an interesting term. Who can, who can sojourn? Who will you allow to enter into your presence to worship you? Does that make sense? So there's a little sense of, there's a place of that, okay? So that's sojourn. That's the big, the big question. And the answer, not only is all whole psalm is the answer, but then when you get to the very end of verse 5, boom, then you come to the final answer. So that's the question that drives the whole psalm. It's a very similar question to Psalm 24. We often sing, uh, during Advent, we often sing uh, Ed Clowney's version of Psalm 24, maybe some other versions of Psalm 24. Uh, but Psalm 24, verse 3 through 6. Can somebody read that for us? Psalm 24, 3 through 6.
Okay? So notice that Psalm 15.1 asks, is asking the same question as chapter, uh, Psalm 24, verses uh, 3 through 6. So how does the question then fit the ending of Psalm 14? How does the question actually fit into the ending of Psalm 14? How does Psalm 14 end? Ah, making you think. Yes, good. Good, good. You could come to the dark side, Luke. Yes, making you think. That's awesome. How does the question of Psalm 15.1 fit in with the ending of Psalm 14? Why would anybody care to sojourn in your tent and dwell in your holy hill? It's where there's restoration of the fortunes of God's people. Yes. And where does salvation come from? Zion. That's another, that's just another term used for the holy hill, for the place of God's presence, okay? And you'll see that all the way through Isaiah and so forth. So actually Psalm 14, and I think this happens a lot in the Psalms, that the previous Psalm somehow is connected to the next Psalm. So there's an actual intentional sort of flow, almost like our hymn book. If you ever look in our hymn book, go back, go to the front, the very front, it'll tell you what the subject categories are for hymns 1 through 76 and the hymn subject for 77 through 85 and so forth and so even even though you may not see the connection up front you know just just looking at them they're there intentionally because they're connected they're thematically connected so sometimes the psalms very often the psalms seem to interact this psalm interacts with the previous psalm Here's where salvation is, is in Zion. So then the question is right. Then who shall dwell in Zion where salvation is? Okay, does that make sense? Okay. So how does, uh, so I have this, this is, I'm asking something, I'm asking for two different sets of answers, but the questions are going to sound similar. This one and then the next one you can't see yet, okay? So how does verse 1 bring you to think of Moses? How does verse 1 make you think of Jesus? Who shall dwell, who shall sojourn in your tent, and who shall dwell on your holy hill? Yeah? Yes? Okay. And, and, and when did Moses receive the instructions for building the tabernacle? Where was he? On Mount Sinai, up on a mountain. And what was he told when he was shown the pattern of the tabernacle? What, what was he told? Build it just like you see the pattern, right? And so there's a connection with mountains and temple and God's presence. So that should make you think of Moses pretty quickly. And then how does this? How does verse one uh, bring you to think maybe of Jesus? Who shall dwell? Who shall sojourn in the house of the Lord? Uh, in the tent and in, in the house of the Lord? So Jesus talking about the narrow door. How else would it make you think about Jesus? Golgotha, yeah, very good. That could be very well. Okay, how about where do you find Jesus as a as a preteen? In the temple. And what does he say? 
Shouldn't I be around my father's house in this business? Right? I mean, I'm sorry, that's Mike Philbert paraphrasing there. So. But, but you, you see the connection? So you got Moses and Jesus. I mean, the connection's there. Okay, very good. So I'm going to ask the question sort of again, almost the same way, but I have a different perspective. Going from verse 1 and perusing your way through verses 2 through 5, just glancing through, how does Psalm 15 cause you to recall Moses? And how does Psalm 15 cause, cause you to recall Jesus? So who can, dwell, who can sojourn in the house of the Lord? Who can dwell in his tent? And then there's a list, a virtue list, if you want to call it that. He who does this, 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 and this, whoever does these things will never be moved. How does that make you think of Moses? Yeah. Yeah, very interesting that, that the, the picture is, he says to Israel, he says, get back. No one can come up this mountain, but only Moses, right? And then you come to the New Testament, and with Jesus, it's come near, right? Hebrews chapter 10, come near. In fact, I'm going to read it during communion today, Hebrews 10. Come near, because of Jesus, you can now come near, right? So there's that aspect. But when Moses is up there alone, up in the presence of the Lord, up in all the smoke and the fire and the noise, and he's up there 40 days, okay, in the presence of the Lord, getting the directions on how to build the tabernacle so that all of us can draw near, to, so that Israel can draw near to the Lord. What else does he receive? The law. Yes, no, great, no sorry. It's great. The law, right? Here's how, I've set you free. Here's how free people live. Here's how free people live. Free people who can have access to me. You, you get the point, the connection? Here's how free people who can have access to me live. That's great, right? So, so Psalm 15 makes you think of Moses, or should bring you to recall Moses. How does it help you? How does it bring you to recall Jesus? I already mentioned one in the contrast between Mount Sinai and um, the what Jesus has done. What else? Yes, in the end, the nth degree, yes, this is only about Jesus, right? I mean, ultimately. How else does it make you recall Christ? Any, any other mountains where there were um, virtues listed and stated, maybe by Jesus somewhere at some point? Ah, Sermon on the Mount! Bingo! Good job. Yes, good job. Awesome. Very good. All right. Yeah, yeah. All right, yes. <laughs> All right, very good. So, any questions about verse 1? Any observations? So, notice again, it's a Psalm of David. So, here's the Messiah of Israel, the King of Israel, writing this. And uh, it is a, it's a Psalm of David. It's in the corporate hymn book. This is what God's people sang. He, wanted, he gave this not just for his own sake. He's not pumping his pushing his own, um, uh, promoting himself. It's not his own PR. This is for God's people, right? For them to in worship, right? So you see that. A, a Psalm of David, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Any questions or observations about verse 1 before we move on? All right. So starting in verse 2, to the second line of verse 5. That's what B means. Is, so usually you break a verse down by like 5A, 5B, 5C. 
All right, that means there's like three lines there. So I'm talking about the, to the end of the second line of verse 5. So verse 2 to the end of the second line of verse 5 is the tome. And we're going to walk our way through these because they seem to be grouped together intentionally. So notice the tone of character in verse 2. Somebody read for us again verse 2. Okay? So I'm calling this the tone of... I'm going to use tone all the way through this, all of these verses just because you think about tone, tone sets the direction of what you sing. Does that make sense? So when we have... Uh, when, where's David? David's in here somewhere. I know he is. No, he's not. Okay. So if... Uh, there he is. There's David. So when David starts playing, you know, there's a tone in the music. You can, you can tease this out better than me. But, but there's a tone that actually... Of a musical tone that actually sets the direction. So if he decides to take Amazing Grace and put it in a minor key, Amazing Grace, how sweet. Right? Everybody's like, boo-hoo, right? The tone sets the direction. Does that make sense? So I'm calling all of these tones, but this first one is a tone of character. All right? So there are three traits of this tone of character, and they are what? What are the three traits that are listed there in verse 2? Walks bl- okay, walks blamelessly, does what is right, speaks truth in his heart, okay? Now, to be blameless does not mean sinless, by the way, okay? Sometimes we think it does, but Paul in Philippians 3 talked about himself as a Pharisee and said he was blameless regarding the law. Now, either he's an egoist and doesn't see where he fell short, or what he's referring to is that even when he sinned, he did exactly what the law said in reference to sacrifice, he fulfilled the law. That's really what blameless is more about, okay? Fulfilling the law, not necessarily um, being sinless, okay? So he's blameless, walks blamelessly, does what is right, speaks truth in his heart. Those are the three traits that are mentioned. Great question. Can you hold on to that for a minute? Please do. Yes. So what is the extent? Look at those three traits and where they're at. What is the extent of this tone of character? Everything. Yeah. He walks the walk. He talks the talk and he walks the walk, as we used to say in the 70s. All right. All right. So very good. I mean, that's the extent. Okay. Is there anything in Psalm 15, verse 2? Is there anything in Psalm 15, verse 2 that stands in sharp contrast to the fool in Psalm 14? Okay, but there's something specific too. Where where does the fool say there is no God? Where does he say that? In his heart. Okay, what is, the, what is the one who is dwelling in the tabernacle, in the temple, where is he speaking? Truth in his heart. Do you see the contrast? That's what's going on there, Berta. Okay, got it? So there's another connection, by the way, with Psalm 14 and Psalm 15. But notice he speaks in his heart. He may not go walking around in the sense of bragging about truth, but it's already a heart issue. Truth is what he's, he's aiming for. Did, do you know anybody who actually said something about uh, it's not what's outside of you that defiles you, but it's what's in your heart that, you know, that's where all adultery comes from, blasphemy, slander, 
sexual morality comes from. Anybody remember who that might be said that? Jesus. Yes. Right? Very good. And so it's very important that it talks about speaking truth in his heart. And then you contrast that with the fool who says there is no God. He says that in his heart. Okay? So this is truly a tone of character. So how do you know that this tone of character is a lifestyle and life habit? It's right there in verse 2. I'm sorry? Walk. Yeah. Right. That word itself tells you this is, your, this is the walk. This is the journey he makes. This is the hike, the trek he takes, right? So this is the pattern of his life, Okay. And so that's important. There's also, um, it's the verb tense in the Hebrew, but you see it here, you see it much in the English. He walks blamelessly, not he walked once blamelessly. It's a sense of ongoing. He walks blamelessly, does present active tense, does what is right, speaks present active tense. It's something that goes on. It's not a one-time event. It doesn't mean for, for, for David, if he's thinking about himself, for example, it doesn't mean he's spotless. But it's that this is the pattern. Okay? And that actually fits with the New Testament. All the way through the New Testament. You don't, you don't, for example, exercise church discipline usually because of one failure. Right? In the sense of outright excommunication, if that ever had to happen or something like that. There's a life pattern there. Okay? So the recovering alcoholic has falls off the wagon once. Well, no surprise. I mean, in some ways, right? But is he repentant? Great. If he's repentant, awesome. We're, we just continue walking with him because his walk, his trajectory is this way. Does that make sense? Okay. So, yeah. So, it's a, it is a, it's a, it's a lifestyle, a life habit. Bl- uh, walks blamelessly, does what is right, speaks truth in his heart. Okay? Um, so, any questions on verse 2 before we move to verse 3? Okay, verse 3 then, tone of communication. So it's tone of character, not tone of communication. Yes, I did stick with the C's in these tones, okay? The tone of communication. So you look at verse 3. Somebody read verse 3 for us. Out loud. Okay, so tone of communication. There seems to be a connection between the first part of that verse and the second. Um... And then it goes on to the last part of verse 3 and does and takes, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Right? There's three lines in that verse. Okay, so list the three traits then that a genuine worshiper will not engage in. What are the three traits that a genuine worshiper will not engage in? Does not slander. Yeah, doesn't do evil to his neighbor. Yeah, it doesn't take up a reproach. Okay, we're gonna, we'll talk about reproach in a minute because I'm going to ask what that means for somebody. All right, so in the Hebrew, all three of these traits actually begin with the word no. So it goes like this. It says, um, answering the question who, it says, no slander on it with his tongue. No evil to his neighbor. No reproach does he give to his friend. So it's, it's just emphatic. Like, no, no, no. This is just for. They know better than that. So they're not going to go down that road, generally speaking. So, so um, 
all three begin with a, a no, which makes this an emphatic verse, actually. So what does reproach mean? Takes up no reproach. Uh, takes up, uh, does not take up a reproach against his friend. What is a reproach? Sometimes we use words that we don't always know what they mean. What is reproach? What is it to reproach someone? Yeah, not heaping up disgrace or shame on someone. Yes, very good. Thank you, Google. Yes. I mean, Berta. Sorry, yes. Oh, that, yeah, that could be, yeah. Yeah, that could be. And that goes along with the slander part as well. Which then, if you have speech at the beginning of the verse and speech at the end of the verse, that changes the way you hear the middle of the verse. Does no evil to his neighbor. The evil specifically is communicative evil. Okay, does not destroy your neighbor with your tongue, for example. Okay? All right. So in 1 Samuel, I'm going to talk more about reproach. In 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. That Hebrew word there for reproach is used six times. It's exactly what Goliath did, okay? It says it six times that Goliath, uh, it says in the ESV, defied the God of Israel and Israel's God, but it's the Hebrew word for reproach, heaped reproach upon Israel and Israel's God, okay? And so Ralph Davis puts it this way in his little commentary, quote, the derision Goliath heaped upon Israel and Israel's God. That's what the reproach is. So here in the psalm, it means that one does not mock or ridicule others because of their conditions or circumstances. Okay? That puts it, I think, pretty simple. Does not heap reproach on others. Okay? So based on Psalm 15, verse 3, how do you know that speech and sociability are actually closely tied together, just from what you see in verse 3, and maybe pulling up from verse 2. How do you know that speech and sociability, I was working hard at S's there, how do you know that speech and sociability, communication and civility go together, actually? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah? How else? Okay. I think it's just important for us to remember that that's the part of the connection with our communication. That's why Scripture, it's really amazing how Scripture is just obsessed with what we say. It's all over Proverbs. It's all over James. If you didn't get through the series in James, go back and listen. I mean, it's, it's in a lot of places. The words we use to communicate, whether we're speaking or however we communicate, are hugely important, and they are related to our sociability. Our speech is related to sociability, okay? So let me, um, let me give you one example. I, I mentioned this book before. This is called Posting Peace, and this is going to get to social media just briefly. And so the subtitle is Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do About It. And his name was, is uh, Douglas Burr. He's not PCA. He's in a different denomination, but he actually used to be a journalist, and he used to be a, pod, uh, a podcaster or a broadcast journalist, or something like that. And he, and he's a Christian fella, and it was interesting, he tells a story in the book of how he got raked over the coals because he got sideways uh, because he didn't agree with a certain movement within Christianity, the political movement within Christianity. He just didn't agree with it. He got immediately skewered 
and the slander that was heaped upon him, okay? And I've seen it happen so many times, and as he was ta- laying it out, I was going, oh, I've seen that a bunch, you know. And so he has a really important statement. He says, what becomes normalized in our social media practices, speech, communication, what becomes normalized in our social media practices becomes standardized in our marriages, families, and friendships. What we do online and how we do it online have consequences that go far beyond the online world. I've read too many studies in the last uh, 10 years that is seeing this trend that the way we are, the way we communicate, for example, in texts and emails and online begins to pull down our ability to actually be civil with people we see face to face. Because why? What would be one reason why? Anybody know? Yeah, you're, yeah, there's dehumanizing others, yeah, okay. Oh yeah, it's so easy to misinterpret. Yes, this is practice. What you do in your communication is practice. You're training yourself. Moose says this all the time. You do what you practice in a, in a crisis event, right? So you're practicing, and so it's no surprise then that as you practice maybe very hostile um, uh, practices online, that then it begins to impact how you actually live out in your normal reaction to things. Yes. Oh, he was just telling that as his own personal story. But this was, this. Oh, I don't remember him pointing out a group. No, he didn't call out a group. He just chose not to agree with where some people wanted him to agree. And he just said, I I just can't do that. I'm sorry? Possible. I don't know all the story. I'm just telling you that. But I'm telling you what he's what that he just you know. So I did this in my book where I'll I have a point that doesn't matter what happened to me, but it's just this point, and then I'll use a personal illustration, for example. That's what he's doing. This is this is what he sees going on with Christians online. Hold on, Fred. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Right. Right. Moose, we going to say more? No. It's just an illustration. Yeah. No, the book is because of what he's seen, which is why I did that class. Yeah. Which is why, like, for example, I did that class a year and a half ago and how we vet the media and I brought in social media. It's not because of experiences that have happened to me. It's because of what I'm seeing that it concerns me, and his book is the same way. It follows down that same path. Could be. But, but I'm just saying this is, there's too many studies, not just from this book. I mean, there are, there, are, there, there are too many voices saying this is what we're seeing, right? We're seeing this more and more and more. So Derek says to me the other day, brilliant Derek, he had no idea I'm writing this book because he doesn't pay attention to anything. But anyways, so... He says to me one day, he says, Dad, you know, it's really the weirdest thing when you get people behind a windshield. 
where they no longer have to engage with somebody face to face, they can become demons. I mean, I saw this guy, this is the nicest guy from school, and then all of a sudden he gets in a car and he starts cutting people off, cussing people out. And I'm going, what? And so he goes, I finally realized. That's the way it is with social media, Dad. Once you get behind a windshield where you're not engaging personally, it's like the inhibitions go away, and then this, this craziness comes out. And I'm looking at my son, I'm going, dude, there's hope for the future of America right there. <laughs> right? That's awesome. But it's, it's very obvious. Anyways, this is the point I'm making, I'm trying to get across, is the connection between sp- speech and sociability. You are practicing whatever we do, whether we're doing it online or we're just doing it in other things. We are, how we communicate is practice for how we engage with people. And it is practice, it's habituation, habit, for how, we'll, um, how we work or don't work with people. Okay? I think that's the way I want to say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, out of Proverbs. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Who, who are you? Oh, 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 sorry. <laughs> yes. We, we, were just, we just did that before Sunday school we were joking about. Nobody listens to me. And, and they were all like, what? Did you say something? <laughs> Scott's back there. Great. So, anyways, just pointing that out, and that is the connection to Scripture, too, is that speech and sociability do go together. And so then, verse 4, so there's the tone of uh, character, tone of co- communication, the tone of communion. So it's the first two lines of verse 4. Remember, the verse numbers are not actually in the original text. So the verses were added years later, centuries later. So sometimes they're helpful. Most times they're helpful. Sometimes they get in the way. This is one where they get a little bit in the way. Okay? So you look at uh, verse 4. Somebody read the first two lines of verse 4. Okay, so there are two characteristics in verse four A through B that are the two. They're actually two sides of the same coin. The way it's written, it's to despise um, uh, who uh, uh, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. What does that look like? But he honors those who fear the Lord. One part of the despising those who are vile is not sitting around snooty, but it's the idea of actually honoring those who fear the Lord. Okay? So there's a, that's the two sides of the same coin. So in the Hebrew, the first line is, the despicable are in his eyes despised. <laughs> pretty cute. I like it. The despicable are in his eyes despised. Okay? Um, but the one who fears Yahweh, he honors. That's also how it shows up in Hebrew. So... Um, you think about that verse, do you hear some honoring of God? Uh, uh, wait, before we get there. Wait, 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 wait. I don't before we get there. So, what does it look like to despise the vile person and honor those who fear the Lord? What does that look like? It doesn't say it here. 
He assumes you understand that. Yes. Yeah. There's got to be a discernment. Okay. Yeah, far more along the hating what God hates and loving what God loves. Right. Yeah, that's a problem we have in America is that we do idolize specifically people that are glamorous. And usually you see them in rock concerts or in movies or sitcoms, right? And we, sports. And so we elevate them, even though the quality is not there, we elevate them. So I love Bono. I love you too. But every time Bono would talk about uh, Amnesty International, he and I are totally different politically. I mean, completely, utterly different. And I just, I, I shout. Nobody hears me, so it's good, okay? I shout, Bono, what are you saying? You don't have any, any valid, validation for saying that, right? I mean, so, I, you know, not choosing, not falling, uh, being swallowed up into that social idolatry that we have. That's a great point. It's a good observation, okay? In fact, honoring those who fear the Lord may be the unglitzy, unglamorous. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So, yeah, and, and that's, that's what we said at the very beginning. We were talking about how does, this draw, how does this bring you to think about Christ because he is the perfect fulfillment of all these things. So his righteousness becomes ours, etc. So very good. Um, so where do you hear... Some, uh, some honoring of the God-fearing at communion at Heritage Presbyterian Church. <laughs> yes, the fencing of the table. Good job, Bill. <laughs> oh, yeah, right, okay, all right, stop it. Yeah, so Bible-believing, God-fearing, Christ-loving church, right? I mean, that's not meant to, to, to and I realize God-fearing is not a common phrase you use now, but it's not a bad phrase. It's actually a good phrase because there's a lot of non-God-fearing going on even amongst Christian circles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a person of faith, everybody believes something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good. Um, 
So this is Derek Kidner, his uh, little commentary, uh, Old Testament, com I don't remember what it's called, but anyways, it's the little Tyndall Old Testament commentary series, which is always a good series to have, by the way, and it's not too expensive. So if you need a, ever want a, new, a Bible commentary series, that's a good one to go to. But Derek Kidner puts it this way, and I like the way he says this. It kind of goes a little bit with what Randy was talking about. What looks at first sight pharisaical in verse 4a is, in fact, no more than loyalty. Okay, so the vile person is despised in his eyes. It's no more than loyalty. This man is not comparing himself with others. I think that's crucial to see. This man is not comparing himself with others, but he's giving his vote, declaring what he admires and where he stands. Right? The vile person is despised in his eyes, but he honors the God-fearing. So he's showing what it is he really admires and where he stands. I think that's a good way to put it. Instead of comparing, comparing becomes... Well, it can become very legalistic and pharisaical, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's good. Uh, any questions on... The last we just did four verses, uh, part A and B, because we get ready to move to four C, which goes all the way to five B. Do you, do you find the C's through B's helpful by any chance? Sometimes people don't. It helps me. Okay, lots of squicky eyes. All right, the tone of conscientiousness. There are three final traits that describe the worshiper's conscientiousness. All right, so somebody read the last line of verse four all the way to the end of the second line of verse 5. Somebody read that for us. Okay, very good. So there, these are the four traits. So that's verses uh, 4C through 5B. There are three final traits that describe the worshiper's conscientiousness. What are those three traits? And, and how does this look like? I'm, I'm using conscientiousness for a reason. How does it look like he's being conscientious? But what are the three traits? Keeps his promises, swears to his own hurt, and does not change. Okay? Yeah. So the first part of verse 5 does not lend out money at interest. It's almost always in the Old Testament, when you go back and look at usury, that's, that was the old term for it. Loaning out money to interest is almost always referring to when you have a poor brother, when you have a poor brother in the community, you don't loan him money so you can bilk him for more, the interest. You actually are giving him a hand up instead of trying to get something out of him. It has very little to do necessarily with larger banking practices. That's why John Calvin had no problem with the banks in Geneva putting out money at interest to most people, okay? But it usually has to do specifically with the poor. So that fits in then with the next part, does not take a bribe against the innocent. Okay, those go together. All right. So uh, they are related, though they each look in slightly different directions. So notice what are the three, what are three broad general directions they look? These three traits. Okay. Okay. 
sounds like Paul in Philippians 2. Okay, what else? Yeah, yeah. So it covers everything from business, say, we'll just put it in business lingo a little bit. So it covers everything from business contracts to the way you deal with uh, your accounting and your finances to the way um, uh, the way you deal with um, EEOC complaints. I mean, if you want to put it in business terms, right? Kind of fits into that. It's like these three different areas, but they're all about conscientiousness, okay? Does that make sense? Okay. So what are the three directions? Oh, we already talked about that. And what are the, what are the actions? So we've talked about the three directions. The, so let's walk through the verses very quickly again here. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. Can you give me an illustration? Somebody give me an illustration of somebody who actually made a promise and then something happened and he, most people would have backed out, but he was like, no, I made this promise. I'm going to follow through. Oh, there you go. Our Lord Jesus, yeah. I remember my mom, my mother-in-law used to be a manager for an apartment complex downtown Oklahoma City somewhere. And I remember after um, the water boiler exploded or whatever it was, and there was this huge damage that was done to the apartment complex. This guy walks in. He was a Jehovah's Witness. He came in. He gave her an estimate, said, this is what I'm going to charge you to do this fixing. He got in there, and he, he was fixing it, but it took longer than he expected and a couple of other things. But he said to her, he said, Miss Terry said, I told you this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. And did he, did he benefit from it? Not in the sense of financially. He actually took a loss, but he stuck to his word. I always remember that. I always think when I read this, that line, I always think of that guy. You know, God bless that Jehovah's Witness specifically for doing that. Is that very pointed to the all right, good. Yeah, so that concept. Uh, anything else on the others? Uh, does not put out money usury. Does not take a bribe against the innocent. By the way, in the, new, in the Bible, usually the bribery is not so that you can get your electricity turned on. It's bribery against the innocent. It's a bribery to pervert justice. It's almost always how bribery is referred to in the Old Testament. So we were stationed in Turkey. The only way you could get your electricity turned on if you lived off base, you had to grease the guy's palms. And then six weeks earlier than he had expected, oh, you know what? We can turn your electricity on today. Wonderful. You, know, you had to do that sometimes, right? In some places you go, like Peru and other places, sometimes you have to just lay out a little extra cash, you know. But it's not about perverting justice. It's just simply to get something done, okay? Bribery usually in the Old Testament is specifically focused on twisting justice. Okay, anything else on those, those characteristics? talk about the tenacity then so it's the last part of verse five somebody read the last part of verse five okay so the worshiper whose tone of character tone of communication tone of communion and tone of conscientiousness is along this trajectory so here's the hebrew it's uh, not that you care but uh i always find that interesting that it's forever Right? It's not moved, not shaken. That's Yamat, well, Yamat. Not moved, not shaken, not overthrown forever. Okay? I think that's an interesting way for that to be put. Um, before we go any further, so the, the 
the statement at the end of verse 5 is the final answer of the question of verse 1, and it takes us back to verse chapter 14, verse 7, Oh, that salvation for Israel will come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Here's who's, here's who's dwelling in salvation. Right? So it's just more of a sense of evidence versus earning. More of evidence versus earning. Okay? Any questions up to this point? So as you read and work through Psalm 15, you quickly notice that life and liturgy, life and liturgy are meant to go hand in glove. How do you notice that in Psalm 15? Life and liturgy. Yes. Right, so there's the liturgical aspect. Who can dwell in God's presence, which implies worship, and then the lifestyle. Life and liturgy go hand in glove, okay? Uh, our worship and our ways are woven together. Just remember what, uh, uh, what Samuel says to Saul when Saul gives that kind of a half-hearted obedience. And he says, oh, well, I, I didn't kill the animals I was supposed to kill when I killed the Amalekite because I was coming to worship the Lord. And what does Samuel say? Does the Lord have as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. So life and liturgy go together. In fact, just go read Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1, we won't go there, but Isaiah 1, where he's very clear. Your life is not going along with your liturgy. And so your liturgy is meaningless. Hey, life and liturgy go together. I just want to emphasize that as you look at chapter 15, Psalm 15, you can't miss that. And so it's healthy to feel the convicting nature of the psalm. As you read it, it is healthy to feel the convicting nature. To go through and go, well, I've stumbled here. I'm not followed through there. I've not followed through there. It's where it takes you. Right? It's where it takes you. If you feel the convicting nature... And you say, but who cares? Or whatever. Yeah, we're back to Psalm 14. You're the fool saying in your heart, there is no God. But if the convicting nature brings you to go to the one who actually fulfilled Psalm 15, score, right? So the convicting nature, there's a convicting nature of this psalm. And it's okay to feel that convicting nature. It's not bad. And yet... As I already just mentioned to you, I already gave it away. Who does it clearly describe and forecast? We've already talked about him very often there, right? And so, and I'll read this during communion today, but Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25, he has come and opened the new and living way, so come near. That's what the writer says. He has opened the new living way, come near. Okay? So yes, who can dwell in the house of the Lord? These are the trends, these are the traits, the characteristics of God's people dwelling in the presence of the Lord. Here are the traits of the life that goes along with the liturgy. Okay, to put it simple. Yes?
Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And we will fully fulfill all of these when Christ returns. And we're already moving in that direction. That's the sanctification. We're already moving that direction by the grace and help of God. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Amen. Preach it, brother. Please. Okay. All right. Are you ready? Try harder, Randy. Oh, go ahead. So one of the things to always keep in mind when it comes to, especially Old Testament, uh, but even in the New Testament this happens, sometimes the writers inspired by the Holy Spirit say far more than they even knew they were saying. So David is likely just talking about here's who God brings into his presence and brings him to worship. And it just, lo and behold, it's pointing to Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, good. All right, so finally, oh, wait, 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 Fred. Very good. So as I said at the very beginning, and I hope that, that maybe this has helped to make the case for this assertion, based on Psalm 15 and then also John 4, worship is not an entitlement, a take it or leave it compensation or comeuppance. It's actually a divinely bestowed honor and privilege. The fact you can worship, the fact that God lets you come worship him. Right? That's the grace of God. He opened the door, he made the way, he draws you in, he calls you to come. You, for us to turn around and say, any day of the month I can go do that. I'd rather go fishing. Well, you know, I would like to go fishing too. But the point is, no, this is an honor. God calls me by his grace to come and to his presence to worship. Does that make sense? Okay. And that, this, by the way, this all kind of bleeds into the sermon too a little bit. So you get a little extra because you were here for Sunday school. All right, any other questions or anything on Psalm 15? Psalm 16, next week, there's an example by Wei Lee of David saying one thing and it ends up being far more than he anticipated because Psalm 16 becomes one of the most quoted New Testament psalm, psalms in the New Testament in reference to Jesus' resurrection. Okay, So Psalm 16, that's what we'll look at next week. Study hard. Do more. Oh, wait, wait, sorry. Wrong church. Sorry, Randy. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Ah, Lord, just to know that you've opened the way for us. We who do not deserve to come into your presence. You've given us the way, the truth, and the life, the only one through whom we can come and, and, and to the presence, into your presence. We thank you for the fact that he is the epitome of Psalm 15 and that, that righteousness you have, you, have, you have attributed to us. You've, given, you've accounted it to us who are unworthy of all of it. 
And then you call us to come and worship you. Forgive us for the times that we have thought lightly of worshiping you. Lord, what a privilege, what an honor. So we pray as we get ready to enter worship, that you would rouse our hearts and stir us up, that we would come in and that we would adore you who are worthy of adoration. And I pray, though, as we do so, that your gospel, that your spirit would soak our hearts and we would walk out and this coming week and in the future, more and more of our life would evidence the very liturgy at which we have worshipped you. In Jesus' name, amen.